So stories have a way of uh, allowing us to listen to things that we maybe won't hear as well, just as plain information. And that's kind of been proven that our minds, for most people, not all minds, but most of the West and most of the world, actually, the way our minds work is more in tune with stories. So if you give somebody information through a story, they're much more likely to remember it or integrate it than they will if you just tell them is it bare information. Hello, my name is Kashka and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tatewood Community Garden where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change. With the start of holidays, we bring you creative inspiration for the summer, full of planet-friendly tales for the whole family. The episode was recorded at the Storytelling in the Garden, which took place last Saturday at the Tapeport Community Garden. It was one of the events we are putting on this year as part of Climate Action 5, Climate Friendly Garden series, to help everyone in Fife get involved in climate action. I talked to the storyteller we met on the day, Owen Pilgrim, about his passion for sharing tales and myths and how they can better connect us to each other, ourselves and to the places we live in. We also touch on how we can use them to draw others into taking action on climate change. We also hear the stories which Owen shared with us during the event and some ideas on how you can share your very own story of care for the planet with others. I started the conversation by asking Owen to tell us a little bit about himself and how he got into storytelling. Well, my name's Owen Pilgrim. Uh, I'm a storyteller. And my background is as an artist as well. And actually, it was because of my art I got into storytelling. So when I was young, I was into stories. And I didn't hear stories being told, but I was into stories from books and um, that kind of continued through my teenage years and got more interested in Norse mythology especially and then um, in my late teens I went to art college and we started creating projects at an art college and I was wondering well, what am I going to make the art projects about and it just naturally went to mythology and images from stories and symbols um, so to cut a long story short, that happened for a while and then after art college I was working in wood and making uh, projects that were based on mythology and I had a project where I was creating a number of carvings all based on a story and uh, I'd rewritten the story because I needed different images, it didn't quite, there wasn't enough in the story so I'd written the story based on a Celtic mythological tale and um, Somebody said to me, they said, why don't you tell the story at a festival? Because I was going to bring this piece to a festival. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, have you never heard a storyteller before? And that was in 2004. And that was the first time I'd heard a storyteller. I went and found one and I uh, was blown away. And that was it. I said, right, I'm going to tell this story. And I learned the story by heart and uh, been into it ever since. And I got more into the folk tales after that because they feel, felt more accessible for storytelling. I still tell mythological tales, but um, 
I like to tell folk tales as well. It's kind of most of what I do is folk tales now. Yeah, yeah. Um, mythology can be quite hard going because they're all big stories with multiple characters that go into infinity, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah, and exactly. And what I find is folk tales are more accessible. So a lot of times when I tell uh, mythological stories, it's people who are ready for that. So people are know that they're going to sit for forty five minutes and listen to a story. Whereas with folk tales, if I go to an event, people are wanting to hear a story. It's easier to tell a folk tale; and it's more accessible. And also, folk tales from around the world have different uh, purposes and different lessons and different meanings. So, but they're universal; they're human a lot of the time. So you can tell stories from different cultures, and they're still uh, relevant to wherever we are now. Mm. Whereas mythology tends to be more culturally significant. So it's harder to tell a mythological tale from a land that you're not from. I couldn't tell like an Aboriginal story because they don't fit in my my mind and my life and in my world and my landscape. So they seem yeah. to be more culturally embedded, I guess, in sort of people telling the story of their own culture, I guess, mm -hmm. and, and trying to connect the land to other people in the same area. And more connect to the psyche of uh -huh. where you live as well. So. I have a strong belief in the land where we live, how we live, and our the, the makeup of our psyches are all related. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at a story from another land, they don't always fit with how we think and how we uh, live in relation to our land. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, I know you've moved from um, Newfoundland, right? Yeah. yeah. We say Newf Newfoundland. Some people say Britain, Newfoundland. Um, you were born in Newfoundland and yeah. moved to Scotland. So, do you think your um, stories and how you relate to land changed much through that? Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's hard to trace that in some ways because I still feel very connected to the land where I grew up. And surprisingly, when I went back, I felt way more at home than I expected to because I hadn't been home for seven or eight years to where I grew up and I went home and I f immediately relaxed my body just felt it knew where it was and the land felt it spoke to me so there's a very different relationship with my history you know my history is there in more ways than it is here and some even though my mum's from Scotland so when I come here it's a different um characteristic of myself that comes out and I'm more uh, I feel closer to the cultural tales of Scotland um, like the the folklore mm -hmm. and the, the, the Celtic mythology and the fairy tales and everything that they feel more here whereas in Newfoundland the cultural stories tend to be from the UK actually yeah. and just been replaced except for some local legends uh, history and uh, ghost stories you know there's mm. quite a lot of them that are more recent yeah. but the stories of the land there definitely feel more like the first nation people's yeah. stories so don't um, belong to you it's a, yeah it's interesting perspective mm. isn't it i mean i'm an immigrant myself so it's sort of interesting trying to think about how we think about places we come from and then when we grow into places we came to as well and um, having lived in Australia, you know, the fact that 
yes, the white person's story, on not just white, but any kind of immigrant story in Australia is very different to the stories of the land that grew out of it, mm-hmm. a real connection with it, um, ancient connection with it. I was interested, yeah, when I came over here, I got a couple of books of Newfoundland stories, because I didn't really, except for the legends and the ghost stories and the more recent history, I didn't know many of the stories, so I got a couple of books of Newfoundland stories, Newfoundland folk tales, and actually they're all, not all, but almost all uh, English folk tales that have just been slightly changed. Mm, yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Mm. So there's no collections that are of the native people there? Well, it's a bit of a tragic history because of oh, the natives of Newfoundland were uh, a distinct race mm-hmm. and they were made extinct, basically. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't uh, realise that. That's, yeah, that's really so they only know a tiny bit about their um, beliefs. But then we've got the Inuit stories, which are closer mm-hmm. to the landscape I grew up in. So even growing up, reading Inuit stories, I felt a real connection to the Inuit stories because the landscape was similar. Mm. Not in the cultural way, because their culture was obviously very different. But the way they spoke about the land and the ice and the snow and all that that I experienced, I got it through their stories. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is it. It's like the personification of the elements that I knew. I was like, yeah, I understand that. I know that wind. I know that ice. I know that snow. I've got a personal relationship with them. Yeah, I guess then I'm making connection between the different peoples. It is through the landscape. You can relate to that and maybe retelling the stories is going to reconnect us together a bit better. Yes, finding the stories in the landscape to connect to and making new ones. Mm -hmm. That would be very cool. Yeah, even in Scotland, that's still happening because yeah. we've lost a lot of our stories in Scotland, especially actually in this part of Scotland. If you look back, uh, you get a lot of stories from the west and from the islands, mm-hmm. but this part of Scotland, the stories are missing, the mythological stories. So mm. it's like uh, we're relearning them, and that is partly to me about speaking to the land and mm. allowing the land to speak back. And you can start to uncover these stories a little bit. So one of the most important things when telling a story, if possible, is to tell where the story came from. So quite often I tell stories from different parts of the world. Sometimes I learn stories from other storytellers or I read them in books. And the story I'm going to tell you today came from a storyteller in America uh, called Papa Joe and I read this story in a book and I've adapted it a bit over the years since I've been telling it and uh, it's kind of becoming its own thing really it's getting a life of its own and it's called the village of pots you all ready for a story Yeah. yeah excellent long ago there was a forest and next to that forest there was a river that ran down beside it. And one day, some people turned up. There hadn't really been people there before, except for one. There was a witch who lived in the woods. And that witch had lived there for as long as anyone could remember. And she loved the forest, and she loved the river, and she loved all the animals that lived there. And then some more people turned up. And They went to the river and they washed there and they ate some of the berries that were growing along the banks. 
and they noticed something along the banks of the river. There was mud, but this mud was unusual. You could, you could pick up the mud and you could shape it into things, and it would stay that shape. Does anybody know what the name of this kind of mud is? Special mud you can shape into things. What's that? Clay. clay, exactly. It was clay. And they found they could make bowls with it. And they could put things, once it dried in the sun, they could put things in it. And then they noticed something even more amazing about it. Because they tried to cook with it on the fire. And do you know what happens with clay when you put it on a fire? Any ideas? It goes really hard. And the hotter you bake it, the harder it gets. And the people there learned this over time, that they could heat up the clay and it would stay in the shape that they made it. And they could even put water in it and it didn't turn back to mush. It stayed a solid shape. And so they decided to stay because the people could now make stuff with the clay. They could make bowls and they could make plates and they could make tools. And the witch living in the forest she welcomed this. She liked having the people there. And she also used the clay to make things. But she also made things from the other things in the forest, from the trees and from the berries that she'd find. She'd make dyes for her clothes and she'd weave cloth from the, from the fiber of the nettles and other things that grew uh, at the edge of the forest. So she welcomed the people because they brought life to the place. And so these people made their pots, they made their plates, and of course, they had families. And those families got bigger, and a village began to form near the river. And they still used the clay to make things. But they learned how to make even more things with the clay. They made tiles and bricks to make houses with. They made jewelry out of the clay. They made pipes so they could now run water into the village. What else do you think they could make out of the clay? Any ideas? What's that? A cup. A cup, of course. They made lots of cups and mugs as well because they could now make tea out of the things that they found growing in the forest. Anything else you can make out of clay? Houses. They made houses <laughs> completely out of clay. Everything, the walls, the roof, everything. Even their beds were made out of clay. Mm -hmm plates, they made plates as well, and they made forks, and they made spoons. Sinks. sinks. Excellent. Yeah, they made sinks and even bigger sinks. What do you call a big sink that you can get in? And have a bathtub! Bathtub! <laughs> so they made bathtubs as well. And they made all sorts of things. And eventually, it was the only material they were using. They didn't use the wood from the forest. They didn't use anything else. They just used clay to make everything. And the thing about clay, like I said, you have to heat it really, really, really hot to make it hard. So what do you think they were using to make the fires? To heat the kilns that bake the clay. That's right, they were using wood. And so they had to get the wood from the forest. And they started to cut down the trees. And at first they weren't cutting down very many. But as the village grew and they needed more clay to make things, they cut down more trees and more trees 
and more trees, and soon there was no forest anywhere around the village. They had to go further and further to get their wood. And that meant that all the animals that lived in the forest were gone as well. And the witch was not happy about this at all. She lived in the woods, and her home was disappearing more and more and more. And she didn't know what to do. And she wasn't very happy with the people, and they, they stopped listening to her as well. They were once her friend, and eventually they stopped even listening to what she had to say. And she warned them. She said, you can't cut down the forest, and you have to be careful not to use all the clay. But do you think the people listened? Because they thought there was lots of clay. There was plenty of clay for everyone. And so they kept doing it. And the other thing was, they weren't very careful with it. They were making things out of clay and something would get broken and they would throw it away and make something else. And even they would make cups. And it would be a really nice cup, but then somebody would make a different cup. And then that one was more interesting. So they'd throw away the old cup and even though it was still good. And this kept happening. It was like fashions were happening. The certain sort of plate and a certain sort of pot, a certain sort of bowl and maybe some nice clay jewelry as well. And they got really good at glazing as well with colors. And so things would go out of fashion, just get thrown away. And it would all get thrown behind the village. And a mountain started to form out of the broken pottery. And the mountain got bigger and bigger and bigger. It was like a big hill behind the village, all of broken pottery. And they called it the Mountain of Shards. All the broken pottery shards were there in this huge mountain. And you know what? The witch had nowhere else to live, so she made a cave in the Mountain of Shards, and that's where she lived. She became known as the Witch of the Mountain of Shards, and that's where she stayed. And she kept warning the people, stop using up all the clay, there'll be none left. But did the people listen? No. No, they didn't listen. And they kept making things and breaking things and throwing them away and making new things. But can you guess what maybe happened next? They were using up all that clay it started to run out and there was less and less and people were keeping it for themselves and making things with it just for themselves and it became more and more difficult to get the things that you wanted and the people in the village were starting to get quite upset about this and the village was quite big at this time and there was one section of the village and that's where all the potters lived all the people who made the things out of pottery and it became harder and harder to get clay to make things. And people started to get angry and blame each other. Some people said they were wasting too much. Other people said they weren't being careful. Other people said the clay was being hidden and not being shown to other people. And they even blamed the potters for not being better at making things that were strong enough to last. And there was one little girl who lived in the village of potters. Her name was Penny. And Penny saw what was happening. And Penny's family had made pottery for as long as she could remember because she was born in the village. And she didn't like seeing people getting blamed and seeing her family being, uh, getting, people getting angry at them for uh, wasting the clay and not making good enough pottery. And she thought something should be done. And she remembered somebody saying that the witch warned people about not using the clay. And she wondered if maybe the witch might have a solution. So off she went, up to the mountain of shards, 
to see if she could find the witch and speak to her. And so Penny got up to the mountain of shards and she looked around and she found the opening to the cave. And she called in. She said, hello, is there anybody in there? And then she heard a voice. Who is it? And Penny said, well, it's, it's me, I, I'm Penny. Penny from the village, I'm from the Potters. I wanted to speak to you. The witch said, go away. You've never listened to me before. Why would you listen to me now? And Penny said, but, but uh, we need to do something. We need to fix the problem that we're running out of clay and everybody's getting angry and we don't know what to do. And it was then that Penny saw the witch hobbling out of the cave with her stick. She looked at Penny and she said, you want my help? Penny said, yes, well, we need your help. We don't know what to do and, and the clay's running out. Hmm, she said. I'll tell you what. I might help you, but you first have to gather the people together and have them listen to me because there's a few things that you have to do first. Penny said, all right. She went down to the village and she started to tell people. She started to tell her family and her friends that the witch is willing to help if we listen to her. And at first people didn't want to. You know, they had no interest in the witch or anything she had to say. But Penny went around and she tried to convince people and word spread and eventually enough of the village were interested in what the witch might have to say. And so Penny went up and got the witch and brought her down to the village and everybody gathered around to hear what the witch had to say. And she said, first thing I want you all to do is apologize for how you've treated me all these years. You've not listened to me. You've been mean to me. You've cut down my forest. And the first thing you have to do is apologize. And some of the people were okay with this and some weren't. But eventually, everybody did. They came around and they apologized to the witch for not listening to her and how they treated her. And then the witch said, now you have to do one more thing. And this is the most important thing of all. You have to replant the trees. You have to put the forest back as best you can. Of course, it's not going to be like it was, but if you start planting the trees and taking care of it, things will come back. And if you promise me you will start replanting those trees, then I will help. So it took a little while, took a few days, word spread around the village, and eventually everybody agreed. They said, they would start replanting the trees. And they started to collect seeds and, and saplings from the edge of the forest and brought them in and started to plant them. And so the witch slowly returned to the village. She came back one day a week and then two days a week and then every day of the week to help people. And a few of the things she did was, and this was an important one, she showed them how to make a cement, a glue, using plants from the forest, and some sand from the edge of the river and they could make a glue that they could stick the bits of broken pottery together with. And so now they didn't have to throw things away. They could make things out of the broken bits of pottery and they could also fix broken cups and plates and whatever else. And this was a huge development for the town. They'd never had this before. So they started to take the shards back from the mountain of shards and glue them together. And they made new cups, new plates, and they were just as good as the broken ones. 
And the witch also showed them how to make mosaics so they could decorate their houses and make walls with broken pottery. And the other thing that happened was in the village people had forgotten how to use other materials. They'd gotten so used to using clay, they'd made everything out of clay, that they'd forgotten how to use the plants and the trees and the other things that they found. So the witch showed them how to get willow and weave it into baskets and into furniture and whatever else and into walls. And they were able to make things out of willow. She showed them how to use hazel and make that into things. She showed them how to make fabric using the fiber inside the nettles. Showed them how to use the berries to make dye. And soon the village was using all sorts of materials that they could find in the forest. And they were making all sorts of things, even using animal skins to make furniture and drums and whatever else, and clothes, of course, as well. And this changed the village completely. They started using the clay less, using the broken clay more, and using all sorts of other materials. And the forest grew back around the village. The animals returned. And soon things were back to almost how they were before. And the village was much healthier and much happier, having used the materials that were at hand and just being so much more careful with what they had. And Penny was quite happy too as she grew up in the village. She saw how much it was thriving. And the witch was always respected after that. And she became a good friend with everyone there. And that is the story of the village of Potts. Do you like that story? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hope it kept you warm. <laughs> so let's look at that story a little bit. Do you have any thoughts about that story? What did you see in that story? Who were the important people in the story or the characters, the important characters in the story? And what do you think they meant? Mm -hmm. A witch. And a witch. And what did the witch have? What did she know? Yep. She also knew all about the forest and all the things that lived in it. So the witch always knew what other people were missing. So in the story, she's kind of like nature. She's the, the, if we listen to nature, and nature can teach us a lot of things. And so when the people in the village stopped using other materials and just use the clay, they weren't listening to nature anymore. They were just using their own greed and their own ideas to create things and not really paying attention to what was happening around them. So quite often in stories, things in the stories represent something. And in that story, the witch is, is nature. She's what happens if we listen to what nature has to tell us. What other things about the story? What were they using in the story? What material? Natural material. Clay. Clay, that's right. And so that is something that we'd use as well. You know, a lot of things that we use are still made of ceramics. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've got lots of mugs and cups at home and they're all made of clay. And it's like anything else. If you use it carefully, it can last a really long time. But if you're not careful with things, they tend to run out quite quickly. And what else? So what could they do in the story that would have helped things to last longer? 
What do you think? Be more careful with the materials that they had. threw stuff away so they could have kept things couldn't they and um, use them a bit more carefully anything else what else could they do to make it last longer <laughs> fix things yep fix things anything else and they also could have used other materials that's right and they can also use it for different things so if something's broken it can be used for something else. Maybe your cup. Like I've got a mug at home and the handle broke off of it. Now it's filled with pens. So instead of throwing it away, I just use it for something else. I've got some things in the garden that used to be pots and things, but now they've got plants growing in them. So there's things that we can do. And also we can use other materials. So we don't need to use the same material for everything. And it's better to use materials that you can recycle and use again, instead of using things that uh, you can only use once and they're no good anymore. I've got one. They could not be wanting better things. That's right. Yeah, be satisfied with what they've got and stop wanting other things. So there you go. So in that story, we've got the clay, which was the resource that they used. We've got who used it, which was the people in the village and, and the witch as well. She used the natural materials. We've got how they used it, what they made with it, which was, you know, and that is the thing about clay. You can use it to make anything, really, almost. And then you got how they would have been better using it or they could have uh, been a bit more careful. So those are the four main points, really, I think, in that story. But what we thought we'd do, just to get your uh, imaginations thinking about your own stories, is me and Casca were going to tell a little personal story about something that we've experienced in our lives that has to do with um, what we use from the environment and our natural resources. So Casca, do you want to go first? So when I was thinking about picking a story, a memory from my own past, what popped into my head is strawberries. Because strawberries are so yummy at this time of year, aren't they? They're all in season, you can get them everywhere, they're juicy, they're sweet, they're wonderful. And um, what it reminded me of is my grandma. Very, very, very long time ago, about 35 years ago, I used to go and visit my grandma, and that was all back in Poland where I used to live. And my gran grandma had this fantastic garden full of vegetables and fruit, and she always treated us to something special. And uh, one of the memories are just amazing, um, and they're just so fresh in my mind, it's almost like it happened yesterday, is her giving us some lovely wild strawberries. And these are the tiny little, little strawberries, not like the big ones you get in the shops. So the taste, they're even sweeter than the shop strawberries. And she used to have them in the garden and she used to give them to us with a bit of cream and a bit of sugar on top and it was delicious. That reminded me about all the stuff she used to grow. And then obviously... Um, you can't grow stuff in winter because there's snow and it's too cold. But what she used to do is to make all these preserves and put the, everything in jars and make sauces and make jams so we could taste the summer all, all around um, the seasons. So that was another memory that popped into my mind. 
you know, I can't do preserves as well as she, she does. And I really don't have access to the garden as she used to. And that made me wish that I could do these things better. So um, that's something that I'm thinking about um, as a result of thinking about a story from my past. What I realised is she wasn't just doing it in her own garden, but she was in charge of all the allotment gardens all across the city she used to live in. And all the people in that city used to go on Saturday or Sunday to do their gardenings and their allotment and take the whole family and they would have a picnic and they would do the weeding and they would do the harvesting and they just have a party growing food. Instead of going to the supermarket or shopping, they would go and hang out in their gardens. And that's, that's another thing that I sort of remembered as a result of thinking about strawberries. So that's my story. Excellent, thank you. And I'll share a little one as well. And this will get you thinking about your own story. So thinking about something from nature, that's a bit of a resource. Um, so I grew up in a place called Newfoundland in Canada. And where I grew up, it was there, people were there because of the fish. And that's like the people in the story with the clay. So people went to the north of Newfoundland to go fishing. And when my father was young, there was lots of fish. And I saw a lot of that when I was growing up. My grandfather was still a fisherman. He would bring fish in. And what would happen is, if people went out fishing for themselves, whatever they brought back, they would share with other people. And so, uh, would get, you know, your, if you had fish and your sister didn't have any fish, you'd go and give your sister some fish or some other family. But there was also a commercial fishing, which fished lots of fish to send all over the world. So instead of just for people nearby, this went everywhere. Um, and obviously what happened was the fish ran out. And then they had to stop the fishing, which meant there wasn't really very much work for anybody. But now the fish are coming back because they've stopped fishing. And so my father's still there, he still fishes, but the fish that he gets is just for himself and for the people who he knows for his family and for his friends and the same with other people it's all shared out so it's a very much more careful way of uh, managing that resource now it's just being careful with what they do with it and the other part of that is the whole culture of the north of Newfoundland is based around fishing so the festivals are cod festivals um, and a lot of the music and a lot of the artwork is all based on that relationship with the, with the land as well and with the fish. And so what happened was when people weren't allowed to fish, they didn't want to do the culture either. It was sort of a bit tragic, sad, that you know they wanted to not think about fishing. So the culture was really affected as well. And now what's happened is it's starting to come back again. People are missing it and they want their old ways back. So. It's that sort of relationship of just being careful with what you have, but also realize that's what your whole um, your life is based on, including your, your songs and your art and your music. Um, so it's quite important to the people. So that's my little story. Uh, so what we're going to do is I want you all to look at your own thoughts on some uh, natural resource. So you've got the resource. Uh, whatever it is from nature that you think of, could be strawberries, uh, could be fish, could be potatoes, could be flowers, anything you can think of. 
And then think about who used it. So in my story, it was the people who lived there, my family. And same in Casca's story, her family and the people of the, the city. They all had the berries and grew them. Uh, what you can use it for. So you can use berries for jam and for um, lots of other things. <laughs> for dyes, uh, for drying out and using in things. And fish was done the same actually, like Casca was saying about the berries. There was lots of different ways people would preserve fish. They'd salt it and they'd freeze it and they'd make it into um, bottles and things, jars, preserves. Um, so that's how they use it. Um, what else it can be used for? So maybe there's other uses uh, of that same thing. And then how it can be treated better. How it can be made in a way that you can make sure there's always enough. And you know, in Casca's story, it's growing it yourself, making sure there's enough space to grow your, your berries and your vegetables. In my story about the fish, it's just making sure you don't take too much and uh, there's enough so that the fish can survive as well. The story I just told you, it's got a journey in it. From the people finding the clay, the witch living in the forest, to them creating a village and making everything out of clay, to it running out and having a mountain of shards, and then to them replanting the forest and everything kind of becoming a bit better again. So it's a map. So it's a good way to, if you, if you can't think of another way to create an artwork, create a map. And I want you to write those four words down. So the resource, people use it, how they use it, and how it could be used better. So something to represent those. Ah, wait, no. I guess I mean, <laughs> right. It's just I think you touched on the fact that tales and myths have powerful messages and hidden in them and that you know that's a very powerful way of communicating certain stuff. Today we were using story to connect ourselves to the planet or to taking care of resources. Can you sort of maybe share your thoughts? on how we can use the storytelling to promote action on climate change better or get people engaged with the topics which are often really big and terrifying and scary and hard to understand. Yeah. Well, I think there's two sides to that. Um, one is direct messages, so more like what we did today was a bit more obvious, the story that I told. Theme and the lesson in it were quite blatant really you know it's in the actual writing or this telling itself about the resources and how we use them and all that sort of thing so stories have a way of uh, allowing us to listen to things that we maybe won't hear as well just as plain information and that's kind of been proven that our minds for most people not all minds but most of the west and most of the world actually the way our minds work is more in tune with stories so if you give somebody information through a story, they're much more likely to remember it or integrate it than they will if you just tell them is it bare information. Like uh, graphs and statistics. Yeah, we don't think, you know, in, in numbers and in bare information as well. So if you give somebody the same message in a story, they're more likely to have it sink in. And especially if they hear a story again and again, it, it starts to make sense. And it's like watching a film you more relate to the character than you will to just the message. So when you can relate to the character, then you can start to understand, you know, the outcomes and the impact and everything that's going on and have an emotional connection mm. to what's happening. Um, so there's a way of 
creating new stories using old frameworks, old folk tale type frameworks, uh, to convey a message that people will more easily absorb, especially children, because children's stories is how you, they think and how they live. So when you tell a story with um, the basic underlying message being a little bit hidden, you know, it's the theme, the underlying current of the story, then they're much more readily use that information in their own lives. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. It's creating something based on a purpose. Um, whether that's, you know, climate change or recycling or, you know, themes like that. The other side, I'll, I won't, I'll only touch on it because it's a big one for me and I could talk about it for a long time, okay. is how we act and how we think. And a lot of stories, especially mythology, is about our psyches and our consciousness and how we live and how we act and I personally believe a lot of the problems that we're having in the world are due to our relationship with ourselves and the healing that we need to have of how we um, of the traumas that we've experienced in our lives of the things that are out of kilter in our, uh, in our emotional health and in our psychological health and a lot of things can be traced back to that and there's a lot written about that, you know, historically, uh, how different cultures have approached uh, the planet. Mm. And it's embedded now, you know, in our past that we've got patterns that we live in that cause us to do things that maybe aren't very helpful and actually very damaging. So there's deeper lessons in these stories about how to live. And how, how we to see heal ourselves as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, seeing what our role is and because um, yeah and values deeper stuff. Yes, yeah, so we definitely need to flick a switch there um, in terms of how we see ourselves and nature as well in relation to the resources of the planet, whatever we want to say it, say about it. Mm -hmm. I think moving from us versus nature being yeah we're part of the same system sort of exactly. <laughs> that's one i think that's one one thing that i feel um, and i think a, a lot of people are saying that narrative needs to change uh, from seeing ourselves as users of nature to being part of nature and caretakers mm -hmm. regenerate instead of use up the resources that's 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 one narrative that i'm quite um, interested in because it makes you feel like you can have a positive so it's not just saving resources or stopping the damage but actually regenerating to leave the world better than you um, um, found it yeah yeah so all these kind of little big big messages that can be delivered to stories yeah and a lot of folk tales uh, especially um indigenous stories they are a lot about a relationship with planet a mm. relationship with nature a relationship with each other mm. and also a relationship with ourselves so it's like the whole well-being isn't just taking the right action it's also how you interact with things mm. and that you see that again and again in stories you know you mistreat a certain tree or mistreat a certain mountain mistreat a river it comes back it does something the spirit of that comes back and causes harm and that is the relationship with the elements and a relationship with nature so there's that sense of creating a wholeness of well-being 
So if we start to heal ourselves and our own well-being, that naturally happens everywhere else as well. Mm. So it's quite a big process, but I think it's absolutely essential right now. Yeah, mm. yeah we're in trouble, aren't we? So you need to. <laughs> we need to do everything we can to, to, to change this. If people wanted to find some stories or learn how to do storytelling themselves, what would your advice be? Um, you know, where to start? Okay, for really basic, I think we're all naturally drawn to certain stories. Like I find there's certain cultures, uh, certain stories that really pull me in. Like um, uh, some of the fairy tales really get me. There's something in those that uh, speaks to me. So I love reading fairy tales and learning fairy tales. And I mean the more European fairy tales. Um, and some of them are quite deep if you start looking at what they actually mean. Um, so I'm naturally drawn to them and I think most people are drawn to certain stories so I think the first thing to do is think about stories you're drawn to and, and find a book that has those stories in it and read them and find one you like and read it over and over and you'll start to see that there's more in that than you probably first realised it starts, starts to speak to you on a deeper level and then tell that story tell it to somebody make it really simple and break it down and to get into storytelling, I would say find a storytelling group. Um, most storytelling groups are really welcoming. We, we have one in Dundee, uh, Blother Together, and it's very informal. And if you want to come and tell a story, there's no judgment, there's no pressure, it's just come and share. Um, so I think that's it. And it is telling. You know, everything gets better in the telling. So just do it. Yeah, tell a story. What about, you know, um, you've picked a fantastic story today uh, for our activity. Uh, if people wanted to delve into stories that are sort of environmental, around climate and resources and changing our relationship to the world, um, is there like a starter resource that you there's actually to? Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of books out there now. You don't have to look very far even just to, you know, go on Google and type some names in about uh, Earth Tales or... Uh, ecological stories and you'll find collections there's a woman called Margaret Reed MacDonald and she's done a few collections uh, of I think there's one called Earth Tales there's one called Peace Tales and they're excellent books to start with and there's even some now that are more local as well there's a few uh, books that have been written by people in Scotland and um, quite often you'll find ones that are nature stories and they very much carry over into um, themes that have to do with the environment and things like that um, and barefoot books as well they have a couple of really good collections of stories uh, to do with uh, nature and the planet okay. and quite often you find that you know a lot of African folk tales and a lot of what's called Native American folk tales are quite a lot about our relationship with nature uh, so they're quite good ones to start with if you've listened to our podcasts before, you might know that at the end of each episode, I put all our guests into a time machine, taking them to the year 2030 and beyond. I ask them to use their imagination to paint a picture of what the world might look like if, over the next five to ten years, everyone does everything possible to prevent the worst of climate change. I've been collecting the memories of the future to help us all imagine the irresistible 
and delicious things we all are working towards. This exercise is inspired by Rob Hopkins' work From What If to What Is book. Well, let's hear about Owen's memories of the future. Two big things that come up for me in that, and they're things that kind of uh, reoccurring and consistent themes in my life that I think are really important. And uh, one is that there's more time for people to come together and do things in a peaceful way, just taking the time out to be together and enjoy doing things rather than being busy. And I know we've had, you know, the last couple of years of lockdowns and things, but it's been isolating. So I'd rather people slowed down together, you know, and did things together. And um, I, I have a tea practice and tea is quite a social thing. And so times like that, you know, where people slow down and come together. And I think just that act would have a huge impact if we made those spaces in our communities and in our lives to just let all the stress and everything go and let's just come and have time you know afternoons not just 10 minutes or 20 minutes to have a cup of tea actually stop and do things together so that's a big one and another huge one and I think it would be great to see this resurge all over Scotland and the next and all over the UK all over the world in the next 30 years is craft and going back to making things for ourselves, using things that are in the environment that we can sustainably use, coppice, you know, grow, whatever, um, and revive craft. I think there would be so much healing that could happen on all levels if we had more craft. Um, yeah, I can see craft, and that might be the thing you know, to bring us together and have peaceful time together as well and as craft. making things yeah. <laughs> I love it I love it D and craft would be good yeah, yeah. great um. I hope this discussion has inspired you to dip your toe into the world of storytelling and to seek out folk tales or explore your own memories to share your concern for the planet with your family over the summer holidays Get in touch if you'd like to share any of them with us and others in Tayport. Just drop me an email on blog at tayportgarden.org. As usual, we have linked a bunch of resources in the episode notes, including the books Owen mentioned, and even a couple more superb recordings of eco-tales from other storytellers. In the next month's episode, we go to visit Tayport Community Fridge and explore everything it's got to offer and its future plans. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more Tayport Community Garden stories and for information on how to get involved, visit our website on www.tayportgarden.org.